This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hello. Hey, what do you think of the new intro outro music? Uh, Worked on that a little bit after some feedback and uh, hopefully that's improved. I'd love to hear your feedback though. What you think of that, either hit me up on Twitter at Tim Hammerich or at Tim at agrad.com over the emails. If this is your first episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast, my name is Tim Hammerich. I'm an agribusiness recruiter, and it really is my pleasure to bring these stories every week of the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agriculture. Really interesting story for you here today. Somebody who rose up the ranks very quickly um, at a large progressive food and agriculture company called the OSI Group, uh, based out of Chicago. He was doing international mergers and acquisitions in China and really got well-versed into uh, the Chinese market mindset, the Chinese culture, and Chinese agriculture. Um, then through through a series of events that, that he'll talk about here today, uh, actually came home to rural Oklahoma to take over the family farm and build a little bit of an entrepreneurial empire in Oklahoma. We have Brady Sidwell on the show. He's a farmer, as I said, in Oklahoma. Uh, he is a the owner of Sidwell Strategies. That is a broker of futures and options for uh, farmers and ranchers and the owner of Enterprise Grain Company, a grain elevator company that I think he said is expanding to three locations. Also doing some really interesting stuff with value-added agriculture. And uh, I just think this is a fascinating story. You're going to get some China in this episode and some rural entrepreneurship both things that I think are very, very relevant to the future of agriculture. So here he is, without further ado, my interview with Brady Sidwell. Uh, Very pleased to have on the show Brady Sidwell of Sidwell Strategies. Uh, Brady, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, Tim, happy to join. Well, uh, before we dive too far into your background, I know you've got a lot of projects going on. If somebody asks you at like a, a party or something, what do you do for a living? What do you tell them? <laughs> well, I, I get that I get that question often, and it kind of varies, I guess, depending on what uh, what party I'm at. But um, but most recently, and probably most exciting, is that we're actually opening a brewery um, here in Enid, Oklahoma, and we're tying in all of the things we're doing in the agriculture supply chain with farms and seed business and grain elevator, and we supply malt to other breweries, and and that's what we're doing now. So. That's probably, you know, from a more kind of retail and, and well, farmer alike too, um, one of the most exciting things. But, you know, in, in essence, uh, we're we're entrepreneurial organization, but uh, all pretty much in the ag, ag, ag business. And uh, for those who have never visited Oklahoma, how, how would you describe Enid? How would I describe Enid? Okay, well, we're, we're in the north central part of the state, about 50,000 population. Um, you know, our claim to fame, we've got actually quite a bit of grain storage in this town. And I think at one point, you know, in the seventies or so with union equity, we were one of the largest, um, under a single roof type grain, uh, grain storage cities in, in the country. Um, and, uh, we also have a advanced air force base, um, that, uh, you know, helps, uh, support our town that, uh, we're definitely glad to, to have here in our zip code. Uh, we're a pretty agriculture community. Um, you know, just, I guess for ag listeners, we've got the BNSF and, and union Pacific both crossing through here. Uh, a lot of activity in the wind energy uh, here recently and, and building windmills, and that's kind of helped support our economy. Uh, Tyson actually just bought a company that was uh, started here called Advance and then Advance Pierre. Uh, they just acquired that company that does uh, does like, you know, pr- uh, makes products for food, food service, um, animal protein products for, and, and others. 
Um, but yeah, good, good place to, to kind of grow up. Um, and I guess that's about it, Tim. Yeah, it, it seems kind of like a, uh, it's, it's not a large town, but it's sort of an agribusness hub for, for the farm and ranch land of Western Oklahoma. Would you say that's right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, for sure. For sure. And you know, there's a lot of energy here too. I mean, I mentioned, uh, wind energy, but that's relatively new. I mean, what's more, um, you know, in this area is kind of oil and gas. So, yeah. And I, I know you grew up in that area, but, uh, left it after college and, and, uh, pursued a career in corporate agribusiness. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I, I went to Oklahoma state university and, and did my ag econ degree, but from early on, I was, uh, I was very interested in, um, in, in international and I'd actually did some internships, uh, with the USDA FAS ATO office in uh, Thailand and then also in Korea, I guess in the opposite order. My first first place to go was was to Seoul and then to Bangkok. Um, I pursued a master's degree in Hong Kong, um, doing economics at the University of Hong Kong. And then I actually joined Rabo Bank um, in Hong Kong after I finished that degree. Uh, and then, you know, worked at Rabo for about eight years. Um, you know, had, had a lot of travels back to, to the head office in, in Holland and, and we did a lot down in Australia and all, all throughout Asia. I mean, Northeast Asia, Southeast Asia, um, India, some as well. And then after eight years there, I joined a food company, food processing company, among other things called OSI Group out of Aurora, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. So they're very active uh, globally and I joined them uh, in Hong Kong in a corporate development um, strategy position and then eventually moved to Chicago. After uh, actually my dad passed away, I moved back to the U.S., but continued to work with them in kind of in a global M&A and strategy role uh, before I moved back to Oklahoma in 2016. So that's that's kind of the short story and, and full circle uh, starting here and then now being back. And, and what initially drew you to to uh, Asia? I mean, is, is that just been a lifelong interest of yours or did you see it as kind of a um, sort of a uh, opportun- business opportunity down the road or what, what drew you there? Well, uh, it was kind of kind of interesting. My freshman year, I actually did an internship. Um, and for all our younger listeners out there, I can't, um, you know, harp enough on the importance of internships. And especially if you think you want to do something, go get an internship related to it and see if that is what you want to do. Um, I thought I wanted to be, I guess, in the policy side of things. And um, I, I interned my my summer, my freshman year at OSU in uh, Washington for Don Nichols. And that probably ages me a little bit. But uh, he was a senator from Oklahoma at the time and, and was pretty actively involved in, in different committees. And one of which uh, was was the discussion about trade promotion authority uh, for the U.S. and I guess for the president um, to be able to approve um, trade agreements, and Congress would have like a thumbs up, thumbs down uh, approval of it, not not be able to to renegotiate it. So they kind of fast track, so to speak, fast track the uh, the trade agreement. So uh, during that time, uh, that was actually 2001. So I guess I'm I'm really dating myself now, but. 2001, uh, China was becoming a member of the World Trade Organization. Um, I was in Washington. Robert Zellick was a U.S. trade representative at the time. Uh, and I kind of sat behind the uh, the senators and, and listened about China becoming a member of the World Trade Organization and, and trade promotion authority. And it uh, really interested me. I you know, our family being from a rural town, I, I, you know, went to a small school that, that um, was five towns consolidated and had 30 in my graduating class, several of which were foreign exchange students. So that just kind of tells you what, uh, what local farm community that I was from, which I know a lot of people have kind of that similar thing and, and knew nothing about China or Asia or had no friends or family that had traveled there, but it just fascinated me. And it was just curiosity. And uh, with that discussion on China and trade and, and how important agriculture was in the mix, um, I thought this this is this sounds very interesting. And I something I knew nothing about and, and wanted to learn more about. And so it was really from that time that 
I started to pursue uh, specifically Asian opportunities in agriculture and trade uh, that took me to the embassies. And I did some study abroad there. Um, and then, and then you know, of course, my master's degree. And then I wanted to work professionally there, given that everything up to that point had been internships and, and um, university experiences. And, and I guess take us back to your first, uh, the, the first time you spent an extended amount of time over there. Um, and uh, how was that for a guy from rural Oklahoma? And I guess what sticks out to you about that experience? Well, uh, I had to get used to eating different things and <laughs> uh, communicating a little bit differently and, and being open-minded. Um, um, you know, everything, everything was different nothing was familiar, I guess. And, and, you know, there was no one over there that I, that I knew. And, and obviously they're a developing, you know, developing uh, economy and country. And, and um, when you get outside of the major cities, things are very rural, uh, not in a way that, that, that we, we would describe as rural, but uh, obviously, you know, very different um, in, in terms of agriculture and, and whatnot. And, and of course the biggest barrier was the language. Um, it's not something that you can just kind of look at the text and figure out and sound things out. It's, it's a script language, of course, Chinese, Korean, Japanese. Um, I studied a little bit of Chinese uh, when I was in school, but there wasn't much offered at the time. And so, you know, it was, Tim, it was an opportunity, I guess, for me to learn by doing and, and, um, have, I guess, develop a little bit of a fearlessness, so to speak, and, and self-confidence. And I guess that's what going away and being out of your comfort zone does for one. Uh, that's definitely helped me now that I'm back here. But, uh, you know, you just, you know, that there's, there's not kind of a support mechanism right there around you and, and they're all halfway around the world, literally. Um, and so you have to just kind of figure it out. So, um, you know, that was, that was a challenge, but um, I, uh, I was pretty, you know, open-minded and, and uh, ready to kind of absorb different things and learn and grow and, um, you know, there's not everything was a straight line, but um, but it was it was kind of interesting just to to experience different things and and to grow as a young person to um, you know not ask maybe why why but why not. So. Could could you go a little bit deeper on the the Chinese mindset? In what ways they're uh, in what ways they're kind of trying to catch up with the American production model, and, and in what ways are they sort of t- kind of taking leaps forward by cherry picking what they like and don't like? Sure. Well. Uh, <clears throat> When I think about our two countries, actually the size of our two countries is about the is about the same. Um, but you know, the interesting thing is that the United States, and we often may not think about this, but our, our large population centers are on the coast. Um, and of course, you know, you got Chicago up in the north and Dallas down in Texas, but a lot of the populations are really uh, around the coastlines and and not far from mountains and such things. Uh, and then the the place where it's it's least populated is actually where the agriculture is the most productive, which is in the middle of our of our country. Uh, and that's definitely our comparative advantage when you look around the world, and and especially vis-a-vis China itself, is that the population uh, it lives right in the most productive uh, arable uh, soils that uh, that they they have as as a country. Um, and and so you know really agriculture production large scale is not their comparative advantage and and of course the other thing that that China has that's kind of working against it and and being able to to produce and and grow its its food supplies um, is the the sheer amount of of people that live in that country and you know it was just here recently that uh, that the the rural and urban population or that the urban population surpassed the rural population but. You know, we're still talking about, you know, with 1.3 billion people, we're talking about, you know, well over, you know, half a billion people that are still living in rural areas. Um, and, you know, I and, and you know, I want to I want to, you know, people to take this the right way. But, you know, what I really learned different in comparing, you know, people that live and produce agri- agriculture, you know, um, output here in the U.S. I mean, farmers, let me just say it plainly, farmers here in the U.S. versus farmers in China 
is that people that are farmers in the U.S. are farmers because they want to be. In China, they're farmers because they have to be. Uh, there's not upward mobility. Um, and, and frankly speaking, um, and this is just kind of stating the facts, but, you know, they're, they're peasants. A lar- large part of the rural population and farmers in China are peasants. Um, and, and like I say, they're not able to move off the farm. The only thing they have is that land lease um, uh, in China that's, you know, 15 years and, and not always secure. And, and there's not land ownership. And, um, you know, in the systems, they're not free to move around the country. And there's, there's just not the upward mobility that we have in this country. And so that says a lot about our production systems. And, you know, with the government heavily involved and, and having to place, you know, over half a billion people in the rural, rural countryside across limited land that's slowly being taken up by cities and, and highways and parking lots, um, that's a very small, small parcels for every individual. Um, and, you know, there's, there's in China, there's been this mass migration as their economies developed over the last 30, 40 years since Deng Xiaoping uh, of, of people that are sons and daughters of the farmers have moved to those urban centers working in factories. And it's very common. I traveled a lot around the countryside all over the all over China, um, you know, looking at beef supply chains and grains and lettuce and various things that we were handling at the, especially at OSI, but also uh, clients that we were financing at Rabobank. And, you know, you see a lot of kind of grandparents holding their grandchildren because their parents are way in Guangzhou or other, other you know, uh, manufacturing bases. So they just have a very different reality. So they have to come to grips with that. And that's that's something that's going to take time because it's a generational thing. You know, so China has to come to grips with that reality. It's very easy to think, well, let's just consolidate land and get bigger tractors. And some of that's happening, especially in the northeast of the country and especially on government-owned farms. But when it comes to, to more individuals and in the central southern part of the country, it's it's a little bit more uh, more challenging. So so China is looking a lot more at technology. And, you know, this comes part and parcel to this whole trade war, trade discussion, trade conflict, whatever you want to call it, about intellectual property. And it's and it's true. I mean, I've I've been there. I've I've worked with a lot of Chinese companies. Um, we do a lot with the government and trying to get, you know, land leases to, to build operations or chicken houses or grow lettuce. And and, you know, we we had to form partnerships with Chinese companies in order to to, to move forward. And there's technology transfers involved in that. But they're very keen on and very deliberate, really, in wanting to, to bring technology into the country. Uh, they want to make it domestic. They want it to be domestically owned. And that's kind of the crux of this whole trade issue about intellectual property. But I think they, they realize that they're going to have to do more with less. Very interesting and very relevant today to the trade conversations that are going on. Um, in a brief, if I'm remembering correctly, you left uh, your your corporate position to return to Oklahoma in 2016. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yep. Well, uh, set the scene for us. Kind of what did uh, what did life look like for uh, the operation in in 2016, and, and what's it look like today? You've already given us some uh, short <laughs> glimpses into what you got going on, but but uh, talk to us about what it what it was like back then and, and what you've done in the last two years. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, um, you know the, the the position I left in the in the corporate world. Um, if you would have told me when I first got it, st- you know, started with international and was interested in Asia and all that, that you could have told me I would be living in you know downtown Chicago and have a a global role in mergers and acquisition for a very you know progressive company that was in Europe and and in the U.S. and across Asia and in you know 16 countries around the world. And I had an opportunity to do that and do you know mergers and acquisitions and whatnot. Um, you know, I, I would have told you there's no way, you know, um, that, that I would have and, and be in such a role. And then, and then I was there and then, and then here I am moving back to the farm in Gulf Tree, Oklahoma. <laughs> like, what is wrong with me? And, 
you know, you, you think about life, I guess, as, as, you know, as kind of a stair, stairway and, and the goals at the top and you climb the steps and, and one thing leads to another and, and you hope with every step it's, it's, it's a step forward, not backwards. And, and then I kind of like jump staircases, I guess, um, moving back here. But, you know, after my, after my dad passed, and I guess it's a reality we all have to come to, um, you know, it's, it's something that, that kind of tug at my heartstrings as, as a farm kid. And I think it does for a lot of us, um, you know, being from a rural background and, and growing up on a farm, I always had the plan to come back and thinking I would be a farmer. Um, I could have rented everything out at the time and, and decided not to, in fact, or instead I decided to, to leave my, my most ideal job that I ever could have thought and not even dreamed about um, what a role that would that would be to to come back here and, and be an entrepreneur and starting out you know kind of taking over a farm operation my dad had a small uh, little seed business that he did he was an agronomist for Oklahoma State University and so he had a full time job there and was very involved in in you know wheat breeding and promotion of of, of research of of wheat varieties among other things barley and a few others that they had at their research station so. You know, I grew up in that that environment, um, and then back here after he was gone. You know, I guess one thing I realized because I was out of the U.S. for you know ten years, um, basically all of my twenties, I, I was I was in China or Asia, and you know a lot a lot has changed in agriculture here as well. And you know, I think uh, when I first moved back, I kind of just did what I remembered doing, and it seemed fresh in my mind as if it were just a few years ago. But a lot had changed, and. You know, I think like a lot of us nowadays, it's finding help uh, in in these you know in in kind of smaller towns and in agriculture is really a struggle, uh, especially in production agriculture. So, you know, there's there's been a lot of learning over the last couple of years. I I have to tell you, there's there's definitely been um, a lot of things that I've learned about how things are different. And I think you know we all wonder kind of how did our parents do what they did? I mean, how did my dad have a full time job and farm all this and handle cattle and um, you know a, a seed business and all that? And and uh, you know I, I admire it still thinking how he did all that without actually a lot of help. So um, you know it was kind of starting out fresh and and um, you know coming back to the farm and. And uh, learning my way, um, I've always had a real passion for business, though. And and even at, at, when I was at OSI, and I want to talk a lot about the, them because they're a very entrepreneurial organization, despite their size. And I think that's always a goal I have. If, if we're able to build our businesses and companies and be, you know, maybe considered someday as more of a corporate um, company um, and, and, and in in respect of size, I hope that we we never um, I hope we never lose that entrepreneurial spirit because uh, to me that's what that that gets us up every morning and and keeps us thinking and and. Makes Makes things active and, and we don't get complacent. And OSI was like that, and I think that's kind of where it started. And there, the chairman there is he was 83 at the time, and, and their leadership, and, and there was always kind of that hunger. And I, I worked a lot on the international front, and we had kind of a, a very entrepreneurial spirit in the organization that I think uh, helped, um, you know, help me kind of get started and, and kind of want to do more. So. So starting at the farm and then, you know, I realized, I mean, production's definitely a passion. It's, I'm a farm kid, but more so on the marketing side. So, um, and probably the craziest thing I've ever done, um, other than traveling to North Korea, which I have actually here in my office uh, that I did when I was in China, but would be starting an independent elevator. And, uh, you know, maybe knowing what, what I know now, I, I don't know that I would have taken that step, but it was a bold one and it remains to be bold. And, um, but, you know, we've, we've managed to, 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 to build a footprint, but Enterprise Grain Company is, is our business. And we now have a couple of facilities and get ready to add a third uh, delivery point. But, you know, that combined with what I do in the futures and options side, um, I, I love the markets. I've always, always loved the markets and, and uh, you know, the financial aspect of the markets and then, and then the connection with producers and how 
you know, many producers, this is not their forte. So, you know, instead of me trying to replicate things at a production level, I'm, I've kind of shifted really my, my, my operation, the things that I do on a day-to-day basis more to a market oriented um, position. So be it the elevator, and I, I continue to maintain and have built our seed business further. Uh, we've actually started a, a feed operation as well, 81 Feed and Seed uh, on 81 Highway in, in Oklahoma. We're just opening up a, a new location as well near the Kansas border. Um, you know, uh, we do a lot of show feeds and 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 other general merchandise is our, our new store is going to be for, for farmers and ranchers and trying to provide, you know, good products locally at a competitive price. As, as things have kind of shifted from from more mom and pop shops to, to becoming corporate and, and small towns have closed down businesses, we're actually in the, moving in the opposite direction and kind of reopening. Uh, you know, there's there's a big market out here and, and people like to, you know, have relationships with the people they're buying from and, and relationships are key. And, and so we think actually some of that old is, is now new again. Um, and that's, you know, I think across our business, we want to try to bring customer service and good competitive pricing with a professional delivery uh, back here to, to the rural parts of our, our, our state. Um, and, you know, and, and like I say, myself just shifting from when I first came back from a farm, uh, uh, you know, position in the supply chain, so to speak, to more market oriented uh, and retail is, is kind of the direction we've, we've moved. And, and I love it. Um, you know, we still have cows and different things um, and, you know, CP production and all that. And we work with some producers on that also to help manage that part of the supply chain. But uh, but that's kind of how we've uh, that's kind of how uh, we've evolved. Excellent. And I mean, with all of that, the, the farming and the cattle and seed and feed and grain and uh, marketing. How big is your team now? You have to have some. Uh, well, it's, it's growing. We, we've got a couple of trucks too that we run full time um, so we can haul our own grain and seed and fertilizer and whatnot. So um, I actually have to ask and see exactly where we are, but we're, you know, we're around 10 to 12 people. Um, no doubt, you know, just finding good people and keeping good people and, and whatnot is, is as difficult, you know, and what we do as it is in production agriculture. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, we're about 10, 12 strong, you know, between these businesses and a lot of them are, you know, smaller now that we share, share people. But, you know, I, I try to try to, you know, hope that, um, that that helps us attract talent and for people to know that when they come to work, they're not going to be doing the same thing every day. Um, I've got a guy that, you know, helps, you know, clean seed and work on seed dispatch. And he also goes and flies drone, um, you know, over farms when, when we get orders in. So, you know, we're, we're trying to build a team of, of well-rounded people that, uh, you know, are excited and progressive about, you know, what, what can be and, and provide enough diversity, um, you know, um, in terms of their task that, um, um, you know, we're all kind of multitaskers, it seems like these days, um, especially for the younger people we have. Uh, that they have something that that's interesting every day when they come to work. That's outstanding. And um, the brewery. So, so what stage is the brewery? I, I'm kind of seeing how the brewery developed now because you've got all these other businesses and the, the, yeah. the local production, and you can ch- channel that local production into a value add for the brewery. But uh, tell tell us about that project and kind of what stage it's in right now. Okay. Well, and and it really all started um, not actually with the brewery, but with. Uh, a company that that we we looked at that was getting out of the malt business and and uh, you know we didn't uh, uh, well we we took on some inventory that we had tested and everything to kind of put our toe in the water and see how that that would go and and so we're selling now to over a dozen uh, Oklahoma craft breweries um, as well as a couple of distilleries that uh, we've had open here recently I think are three or four distilleries and in fact we just shipped some malt to Arkansas so 
Um, so, you know, I really liked the, when I came across this opportunity, I know nothing about it, but that's kind of our modus operandi also is that we think it's interesting. There's an opportunity. We're going to try to go after it and, and put the ideas together, even without the experience to, to, to try to do it and hopefully make a calculated decision to, to look at different opportunities. And that's what we did with the, with the malt side. Uh, we felt it was an opportunity to value add grain um, that we're already in that business. And so, you know, we're supplying, like I said, those, those breweries across the state and distilleries and thought this is, this is great. And we're trying to diversify that, not just from a malt, but to an ingredient company uh, for, for beer and, and whiskey, um, just to put it plainly. So uh, in addition to, to just grain, anything that can be grown, let's see how we can figure out how to provide an opportunity for farmers that, that, that are within our network uh, to provide them a, you know, a, a specialty crop, say, that has a market determined, that doesn't have all the, the futures and basis exposure risk um, that, that they, can, they can capture. So Things kind of started in, in that that side of things, and I met a local brewer here in Enid, and we kind of talked and went back and forth. And I didn't really have a lot of interest to do to do that just yet. And then, you know, as we got to, to supplying more breweries in Oklahoma and the area, and talking with them about things and and their fascination actually with what we could do locally in the ag supply chain and production that we all do every day, but is actually there's a lot of people right around us in, in the cities that you know craft beer and 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 you know distillery products are are what kind of bring us all together, and so. We thought that was very exciting. And, and then we looked in our own backyard here in Enid and realized that there's there's no brewery here in Enid. So um, that was when, you know, this younger guy here and um, Enid, we, we got back together and he's a home brewer at the moment. And, uh, you know, we shared our passions that we have different backgrounds, but we kind of come together around this product. And so we put our heads together and decided that we wanted to do this. And if you, you know, Enid Brewing Company is, is the name of the business and, and you'll see Enterprise Grain um, and Enterprise Grain Malt all these logos are very similar. So Enterprise Grain is kind of a, you know, it's actually a push start button is, is what it looks like, but it's kind of a circle around a, a, a head of wheat or barley. And then when we got into the malt business, we made it into a beer bottle. And then when we got into the to the beer business now, we, we made it into a pint glass. And so mm-hmm. we want to we want to try to, to display to, to consumers in our area about that being a full circle concept where things are local and and, you know, Tim, hopefully kind of a broader agenda or underlying agenda, so to speak, is, is to get people that, you know, we have less and less people that are voting that have ag backgrounds and, you know, to try and connect consumers and, and do something around something fun and cool that's local and, and help them hopefully appreciate our, our ag history and background and how important it is to our local economies um, over a product that we can all uh, enjoy together. So, uh, so we're on track to, in fact, we just got a message today from the guys making our equipment up in Nebraska, but um, it's supposed to be here early December. We just got an email, like I said, that uh, it's going to be here hopefully early November. So maybe we're a month ahead of schedule, but uh, we're hoping to open, you know, by, well, in this case, late December, early, you know, January, uh, we're actually downtown and Enid if people are passing through or want to make a, a, a brewery run through through our state or through the, the Southwest. Um, there's a new hotel that's coming up. We're right next to a convention center. So we're right downtown and we think our location is going to be pretty, pretty great. And then also the fact that we're, uh, you know, we're vertically connected. Our elevator is about 10 miles north of, of Enid. And so, you know, we are truly um, creating a local concept and bringing local products that are grown right here by our producers and and the history and you know and the heritage of, of, of this city and this area um, into you know the hands of, of consumers and and we're really uh, excited about that. So we're hoping to be here you know open like say end of the year early next year and uh, you'll have to come down. I will. Yeah, I'll put that uh, in the calendar for 2019. Stopping by for a drink. Will you? Yeah. You'll have the the brewery. Yeah. Will you have whiskey at that point too, or not yet? Well, I don't know. I mean, we're I'll I'll put that on the uh, the agenda, but. You know, here, here's one thing we're going to do. And as far as we're aware, we're the one of the few actually in the entire country that are doing this. Um, 
the, the, the breweries and distilleries that, that buy our grain, um, we're going to bring their products into our brewery. Huh. And so we want to have like a rotation of, you know, three to four, say, beers on tap or bottles. However, you know, the brewers are able to, uh, to, to have, you know, based on availability from their tap rooms and distribution networks to, to bring their products into our, our place and, and, you know, have like we, we tell the, the people in this area, we'll have a little bit of Enid and, you know, or a little bit of Garfield County or north central Oklahoma and every beer across the state and hopefully in some surrounding state. That's really cool. That's really cool. Well, I, I need one more question, then I'll, I'll let you go. I have to ask about yeah. North, North Korea. You said that so casually, like, oh, yeah, the, the top <laughs> North Korea. so uh, tell us that story. Yeah, well, um, that was one thing I, I definitely did not miss out on when I was in Asia is, is travel. And I think I went to every Asian country uh, except for a few. And typically, North Korea is left out of, of everybody's travel, but I managed to get there. Uh, and I think it was in 2007. And, you know, there's choreo tours. There's, there's there's only a few groups that are, you know, I guess allowed to go there. And, you know, I had a lot of people, you know, say that, you know, we you went there and supported the regime and whatnot. And I said, well, you know, you can look at it that way. Um, but I, I feel that, you know, this is really the only truly communist country left in, in the world, both socially and economically and in every every sense. Um, you know, China's still communist, Russia's still communist, Vietnam's still communist. But there's a lot of things about those countries that, that are not communist when you go there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, North Korea has just been kind of like off the clock for, you know, a long time. So, you know, we were able to go through, um, we had to fly through China to be there. You could be four days, uh, three nights uh, as Americans. Um, others can kind of come in and out, I think, 10 days or something was a restriction. And yeah, we, we were able to travel the country. And of course, it was interesting because I was, I was actually on the other side of the embassy in South Korea, uh, and I didn't go to North Korea at the time. I went to the DMZ up there, and I was able to now see it from the other side, which was far more casual than the South side was with our, our U.S. presence there. Mm. Um, and, and it just, you know, it took you back in, in time, and just it was, it was fascinating to do. And I think, you know, it was one of the highlights of, of you know, my travels and, and being abroad. And that's what's so exciting about traveling and seeing things in different parts of the world is, is interacting with different cultures and perspectives. And, and, you know, it was just, it was, it was just interesting. Uh, we were called the American imperialist, um, every time we went to, around to the museums and different things. Um, and, and, you know, it was just, it was just kind of taking it, taking things back in time. And I'm just, I'm glad I took the opportunity, uh, when I did. And, and just for the record, it's, it wasn't like illegal to go there, like going to Cuba through Mexico, uh, for Americans, uh, but, um, you know, there wasn't like a travel ban or anything, but we, we did have to go through China. And, and I think at the time I was, I was one of 1100 civilian Americans that had been there. So, and with everything that's happened since, and of course, you know, the student that was over there, it kind of puts things in perspective, but, um, you know, we were young and energetic at the time and, and wanted to see something that, um, no one knew about. It was, it was interesting to him because when I got there, I didn't really think about this, but when we landed in, uh, in Pyongyang, um, we had to check in our phones at the airport. So we had to put them in a locker at the airport. So I had zero communication, uh, the time that I was there. And I think I called my mom from like Beijing and said, Oh, I'm just letting you know, I headed to North Korea. You know, at the time I didn't update everybody cause they, they probably overly worried, but maybe, and maybe they should have been, and I, I should have been more too, but um, it, it was just, it was an interesting experience and to be able to see, um, you know, we had actually quite a bit of access We're we're able to go and, and see, uh, you know, the, the great leader as they call him in the mausoleum and, and as they, they do across different communist countries and, and we traveled in the countryside and, and, um, they've got a long way to go. So we will see yeah. what, what happens with this whole, you know, North Korea discussion and whatnot, but 
you know, in the dichotomy too between their their South the South Korean brethren is they're the eleventh largest economy in the world, and I believe the most Wi-Fi connected uh, country on the planet. And then across the border, and you look on the map at night, you know, and there's there's just no no lights in North Korea. So that's going to be a a generational, multi generational integration uh, should it happen. But um, it it was just fascinating because you know in our generation we really haven't seen true communism um, and and what it does to to an economy you know depending on your politics but but just how how it kind of stops um, you know things in time and so it was it was neat to be able to see that and we went to the mass games the Airy Wrong Festival as they call it and if you if you YouTube it it's it's one of the most incredible things I've ever seen in my life um, you know passion and people in a country being very nationalistic but coming together and making something very uh, very entertaining and beautiful in a way amazing. Well, Brady, thank you so much for doing this. We could, uh, we we need to make another episode out of this as well. But uh, this the stuff about yeah. Asia is just fascinating to me, and I think it's very timely. And then, of course, I think um, you have such an incredible story of of building kind of your your business there in uh, in Oklahoma. So, if people want to follow up with you, either they're they're just interested in any of the projects that you mentioned here, and just want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to tell them to do so? Okay, yeah, <clears throat> well, um, you know, for Sidwell Strat, I mean, you could probably go to Facebook. <laughs> we. Uh, you know, we're trying to be social media savvy and, and, uh, we've got, we've got Facebook pages kind of for everything we're doing. And, and, um, you know, I've got a profile there and you'll be able to link to our companies, but you know, my email is Brady at SidwellStrategies.com and that's with an IES.com. Thank you again to Brady Sidwell, farmer, broker, grain elevator, entrepreneur, businessman, Chinese expert. Uh, I can't even imagine trying to wear the amount of hats that guy wears. But uh, thanks, Brady, for being on the show. Really appreciate that. Uh, also, to to those of you listening, I don't know that I've talked about this much on the show, uh, but you know the recruiting I do is through a company called AgGrad, and we're doing the AgGrad 30 Under 30. This is the most elite, accomplished, excellent people under the age of 30 doing interesting work in agriculture. So please think of somebody either in agribusiness, farming and ranching, entrepreneurship, research and technology, education and advocacy, somebody who you just think, wow, that's an impressive person for what they're doing under the age of 30. I would love for you to go to a website. It's 30under30.ag. That's the number. So 30under30.ag and nominate them. It'll take you a minute and it could make a really big impact on them. Uh, This is for US only. So sorry for those of you. I think we've got about 30% outside of the US that listen to this. I apologize. We hope to expand this globally in the future. But for right now, it's going to be an opportunity to recognize um, people doing great work in agriculture in in the US uh, under the age of 30. So please go there, 30under30.ag. Hey, thanks so much. Would love also just to reiterate your feedback on the intro outro, if it's any better. I know some of you said that my daughter uh, sounded like a gremlin at the end of every show, so we switched that up as well. Uh, But thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Hey,